the National Archives podcast series. Over the top, a foul, a blurry foul, the first football charge of the First World War, presented by Ian Adams. This talk was recorded on the 8th of September 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. Part of Britain's folk memory of the First World War is of long lines of Tommies going over the top and walking into a hail of machine gun fire, whilst resolutely following a piper, if Scottish, or kicking a football, if English. However, evidence suggests that footballs were kicked forward in attacks in very few instances, probably only twice, and only in the 10-month period between the 25th of September 1915 and the 1st of July 1916. The most well-known example, of course, was the attack on the 1st of July 1916, the opening of the Battle of the Somme, by B Company of the 8th Battalion of the East Surrey Regiment, led by Captain Billy Neville. There are uncorroborated and isolated reports of other units kicking off on the first day of the Somme, as well as at the Battle of Ancre at the end of the Somme campaign. Similarly, there are unsupported accounts of football being used by the Rifle Brigade during the Battle of Scarp in April 1917 and by an unnamed unit in an attack on the Turkish lines near Besheba in November 1917. However, the first football charge was, almost certainly, performed by the 18th Battalion of the London Regiment, London Irish Rifles, on the opening day of the Battle of Lewes, 25th September 1915, nearly 100 years ago. Therefore, it is 100 years since the folk memory started and a British unit kicked a football before them in battle. And today I'm going to examine what actually happened on that day and speculate on the meaning of the event to the men involved. But first of all, let's set the scene. When Britain went to war in August 1914, football was a well-established and organised feature of army life, albeit an unofficial one. By the 1860s, football was a common activity in the army, and army teams were amongst the founder members of the Football Association, the FA, and were an important influence on the developing game. The Royal Engineers at Chatham joined the FA in 1869 and competed in the first three FA Cup finals, winning the Cup in 1875. Football had seized the heart of the British soldier by the late 19th century, just as it had seized the heart of the British public. The Army Football Association was formed in 1888, and the Army Cup started in 1889. The 2nd Battalion of the Argyle and Southern Highlanders beat the 2nd Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment 2-0 in the inaugural final. So, as the French historian Arnaud Wacquet recently wryly commented, when the soldiers of His Majesty King George V landed in France in August 1914, they had rifle and ball in hand. The first weeks of manoeuvring warfare ended following the First Battle of the Marne in mid-September 1914, when the German forces entrenched and initiated four years of siege fighting. By Christmas, the opposing armies faced each other from parallel trenches stretching from the Belgian coast to the Swiss border, a distance of over 475 miles. The opposing commanders discovered that the continuous stress of being under shell fire and under sniping 
and the conditions of the trenches required them to establish rotation systems to rest their frontline troops. The British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, established a typical trench rhythm of three to seven days in the firing line, then the same in the supporting line 100 to 150 yards back, follow, and then a similar period of time in the reserve trenches, some quarter of a mile behind the support trenches. These three lines of trenches were connected by communication trenches. In many places, the reserve trenches were out of sight of the enemy, and except for stand two, or when tension was particularly high, the men were allowed outside of these trenches in reserve when their daily duties were finished. And of course, they had to stay close to the trenches, but they would often indulge in playing cards, writing newspapers, writing letters rather, and of course, playing football. After these three stints in the troglodyte world, the troops could look forward to approximately a week out of, of billets. Unsurprisingly, when in billets and the workday was finished, the men kicked footballs about and arranged scratch matches, and their officers organised local competitions. Also, some commanders up to brigade and divisional level supported football and sponsored tournaments as a worthwhile pursuit to improve their men's health and fitness, improve officer-men relationships, create and maintain a spree de corps, and keep the men out of the French bars and brothels. By December 1914, the Athletic News in Britain was regularly featuring reports on the BEF football. Over 1,100 balls had been provided to the army by the Daily Mail and the Sporting Life. The Sporting Life reported that there were over 200 teams established in the BEF by Christmas 1914. In July 1915, General Haig famously complained about the number of men that were falling asleep on sentry duty. He wrote, men should rest during the day when they know they will stand on sentry duty at night. Instead of resting, they run about and play football. So well before the Battle of Luz, football was endemic in the BEF and accepted as a valuable pastime by General Hawk Headquarters, GHQ. So GHQ were accepting that football was okay for the men. But what was not acceptable was the war's strategic impasse, especially to the French and the Belgians, as the Germans occupied a large and economically invaluable tranche of France and Belgium. Therefore, the Allies had to adopt an offensive strategy, whereas the Germans built extensive defences of deep concrete bunkers, large swathes of barbed wire, fixed strong points with machine guns, all supported by field artillery. The first large-scale British effort to break through the German lines was at Neuve Chapelle in March 1915. An extensive artillery bombardment was immediately followed by a frontal infantry assault. And after some initial successes on the first day, it was soon demonstrated that small numbers of defensive troops armed with machine guns could stop lar far larger numbers of attacking men. However, as the Germans could not be easily outflanked due to geography and technological limitations of the time, although the British did try at Gallipoli, Neuve Chapelle set the pattern for British offensive strategy for the duration of the war a strategy well understood by German high command. In the summer of 1915, the French planned an offensive in Champagne and Artois, designed to break through the German lines and force them to retreat. Artois was supposed to be a holding action to keep the Germans uh, stabilised, whereas they were hoping the French to break through at Champagne and then force the Germans to retreat by cutting off 
the uh, longitudinal railway lines behind the German lines. Marshal Joffre, the French commander-in-chief, insisted on a large British attack to draw off German support troops. In a letter to Sir John French, the British commander, Joffre stated, your attack will find particularly favourable ground between Luz and Labassa. Joffre thought that a breakthrough in two places, Luz and Champagne, by the British and the French would end the war. Both Sir John French and Sir Douglas Haig, the commander of the British First Army, which was assigned to the offence, protested against an attack at this site and at this time because of the unsuitability of the ground and the lack of artillery. They also felt that Kitchener's new army divisions needed significantly more training for such a complex attack. However, Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, decided that loyalty to the Allies demanded sacrifices and reluctantly the the plan was approved. Haig recalled that Sir John French said that he wished me to attack on as wide a front as possible and that he knew we must have big losses to achieve any result. The British commanders knew that the Japanese had overcome the Russians at Manchuria in 1904-1905 despite the Russian superior firepower because of their acceptance of heavy losses. The acceptance of heavy losses was seen as a reliable way of breaking through. At Luz, no man's land consisted of long, gentle slopes with little cover and was overlooked by a maze of German fortified pillars, closely packed mining villages and mine workings. The mine workings included pithead winding gear rising to over 100 feet. This one at Luz is called Tower Bridge, as well as slag heaps or crasses, giving a plethora of observation posts for the German artillery, as well as providing sites for snipers and machine guns. Machine guns, this German machine guns at this time of the war, had a, an effective range of up to a mile, so they were very effective weapons. In addition, the underlying chalk was hard to dig and slippery when wet, but offered good dugouts if time was available to construct them, which the Germans had had. The British commanders knew that they lacked enough suitable artillery to achieve the necessary density of fire, to successfully soften up the target at Luz. This would make an attack over the open ground near suicidal. However, Joffrey believed the need for this attack was urgent, as the French army would numerically peak in late summer 1915, and the Allies would briefly outnumber the Germans, as he expected German reinforcements to shortly arrive from the Eastern Front. This attack on three points on the Western Front would relieve some of the pressure on the Russians, forcing the Germans to... Uh, withdraw troops from the Eastern Front and divert them to the Western Front as there was a perception amongst the Allies that the Russians were in danger of being knocked out of the war at this stage. To make up for the lack of artillery, it was decided that for the first time the British would use gas. But there was insufficient gas. Smoke would therefore be released to simulate gas as well as to help hide the troops from the defenders. To boost confidence, GHQ let it be known that the task ahead of the army at Luz should be easy because of the preceding 96-hour bombardment. This four-day artillery bombardment was to finish at zero hour, 0550, on the 25th of September, 1915, when gas and smoke would be released, followed at 0630 by the infantry attack. The Battle of Luz was to be the biggest battle fought by the British Army in history, up until that time. The southern part of the British attack was to be led by the London Irish. They were to advance about 1,200 yards 
to the German second line, overrunning the German front line on the way. They would also cap capture some of the southern defences of the town of Luz. Once this was accomplished, they would reorganise the German second line to resist the inevitable German counterattacks. Whilst they were to be leapfrogged in the attack by the 19th and 20th London Regiment, and the division would swivel from their experience in the line, the London Irish could not only see the unsuitability of the ground for their attack, but they'd seen evidence of the consequences of a frontal attack here. Their trenches were in a concave formation, up to 700 yards from the German lines. Crossing such an extensive no-man's land was deemed too dangerous. Therefore, they were instructed to dig forward trenches parallel to their front lines in no-man's land, connected to the front line by communication trenches, obviously at night. They dug about two miles of trenches during the nights preceding the attack. This would give them a closer uh, jumping-off point. However, whilst digging, they exposed the remains of some 4,000 Frenchmen who had been killed in an attack here on the 9th of May, four months earlier. This grisly evidence reinforced their knowledge of how unsuitable this terrain was for a frontal attack. Even digging the trenches at night revealed the lack of cover. Rifleman Page, in his diary, records 32 casualties suffered in digging uh, these attack trenches during the nights of the 27th, 28th and 29th of August. This work continued between the 9th and the 11th of September. Adding to their apprehension was the knowledge that the Germans were expecting this attack. A large sign had appeared on one of the slag heaps, Crassiers, south of Luz, asking, when is the big push coming off? We are waiting. In early September, the London Irish Rifles participated, as I've said, in a full-scale rehearsal for the attack. The divisional commander, Brigadier General Thwaites, instigated a novel training system of marking out the enemy trenches and fortifications, as well as the division's objectives, with flags and tapes, well behind the line at Hoshin. The division then practised their attack so that every officer and every man knew exactly what his duty in the assault was to be. Sergeant Stadler of the London Irish recalled every detail of assembly, reinforcement, ammunition supply and casualty evacuation was rehearsed at divisional level. He wrote, the preparations for this offensive were detailed and minute, very fine staff work. Unfortunately, several aspects of the attack were out of Thwaites' hands. Notoriously, this included instructions that the men were to walk in four lines in extended order in silence at a steady pace a tactic which probably caused some of the carnage at Luz and later at the Somme. Doubtlessly, it was amongst these practices that Rifleman Frank Edwards, the battalion football captain, and his friends openly discussed dribbling and passing footballs in the attack. The London Irish had a strong football tradition, and they had continued an active football agenda after joining the BEF in France. In his diary, Rifleman Page recorded, went to the fields twice and played footer on the 18th of April. Corporal Rickson's diary shows him playing football against number four platoon on the, 6th of on the 5th of August and then being cajoled, he says, into playing again against the signalers on the 6th of August. Harry Tyers recalled asking for players to be excused regimental duties as they were needed for football. Some believed the reassurances about the attack given by GHQ. 
in his diary entry for the 24th of September, the day before the attack began, Sergeant Rickson of A Company wrote, one thing everybody is very confident, that it's an easy thing. The battalion have decided to go for them playing football. That's the spirit of the boys, although he noted that the idea of advancing with footballs was frowned upon definitely by authority. So football is frowned upon, or the idea of dribbling footballs is frowned upon definitely by authority. Therefore, the men surreptitiously took their footballs with them into the trenches, deflated and hidden in their packs and stuffed down the blouses of their tunics. Rifleman Patrick McGill noted that during the night march on the way to the trenches for the attack, the whole battalion seemed to be very nervous and the presentiment of something evil seemed to fill the minds of the men. This contrasted sharply with his description of a previous night march during training in England. The silent monster is full of restrained power, resolute in its onward sweep, impervious to danger. It looks a menacing engine of destruction, steady to its goal and certain of his mission. That's night training in England before they set off for France. Slightly different uh, attitude when they knew they were going into attack. McGill is one of the best writers of the First World War. He's one of the few authors that claimed he had time to write lots of stuff when he was actually in the trenches, and he wrote three books about his time in the First World War. The Great Push is about the Lose battle. So if anybody's really interested in Lose, apart from reading some of the great books that are out there on Lose from the military history perspective, this is a man that was there, and he writes about joining up to the army, the amateur army, uh, their training called The Red Horizon, and then this one when they actually go into large-scale action. Very good books. These are available as reprints uh, today. In general, the use of gas and smoke at Luz was a failure, even allowing for only half the amount of gas thought necessary being available. In most places, the wind was insufficient or in the wrong direction for it to be effective, so that it either did not leave the trenches from which it was projected, or it blew back into the British trenches. In both cases, incapacitating far more British troops than Germans. For the 47th Division, in the southern end of the attack, a slight breeze blew the gas and smoke in the right direction, possibly aided by gravity down the gentle slopes of the Luz Valley. After the gas and smoke was released, the men with footballs took them from their hiding places and began to blow them up. You could just blow them up uh, by mouth. Those of us who are old enough to remember playing with that sort of ball, you didn't need the one-way valve that modern balls uh, actually require. Much easier to do, low hard work. You wouldn't get match pressure doing it by mouth, but at least it would be kickable. So, after the gas and smoke was released, the men with footballs took them from their hiding places and began to blow them up. Captain Dale, a platoon officer, saw them and ordered the balls to be discarded, allegedly even shooting one with his revolver for emphasis. After the attack, a repatriated wounded soldier of the Irish wrote in the weekly dispatch of the 31st of October 1915, one set of our men, keen footballers, made a strange resolution. He was to take a football along with them. The platoon officer discovered this and ordered the footballs to be sent back, which, of course, was carried out. But old members of the London Irish Football Club were not to be done out of the greatest game of their lives, the last two for some of them, poor fellows, and just before Major Beresford gave the signal, the leather turned up again mysteriously. Rifleman Edwards, the football captain, had hidden one, and just before the attack was due to begin, he was seen calmly using valuable breath to blow up a football as though the matter in hand were going to be a cup tie. 
After the whistle sounded to go over the top, McGill saw, as a little distance off, a football swinging by its wang from a bayonet standard. Reaching the top of the ladder, Edwards promptly threw the ball ahead as a goalkeeper might fling it back up the field. The weekly dispatch reported, the footballers, they chucked the ball over and went after it just as cool as if on the field, passing it from one to another. Oh, the bullets were flying thick as hail, and they were crying, on the ball, London Irish. Once started, the company was soon out in the open, marching forward. After Edwards threw the ball into play, he gave it a hefty kick out to the right wing from where Mickey Milam centred it. Jimmy Dolby and Bill Taylor both had a kick, as did all who could get a kick. Once clear of the trenches, McGill wrote, There was no haste in the forward move. Every step was taken with regimental precision, and twice on the way across, the Irish boys halted for a moment to correct their alignment. Only as a point away from the right was some confusion and little irregularity. Were the men wavering? No fear. The boys on the right were dribbling the elusive football towards the German trenches. The London Irish were supported by two Stokes mortars behind the lines, which gave additional smoke um, to the fog, hiding them from observers and snipers on the classiers and in the town of Luce. This enabled the London Irish to approach the German front unseen until the last moment. It was perhaps a tribute to the innovative training of the 47th Division that the troops successfully navigated their way through the fog to their targets, especially those also passing and dribbling a football, despite the Germans envisaging an attack with gas and therefore issuing gas masks to their troops. The front-line troops watched the cloud approach but didn't realise it contained gas until it reached them, resulting in many being incapacitated. Harry Tyers, who participated in the attack, was an avid cartoonist and captured the initial part of the attack. He produces a somewhat chaotic and comedic scene that downplays the real dangers to the men. No casualties can be seen. However, upon closer examination, you can see that shells are exploding in the background, bullets impacting around the soldiers' feet, and the image is completely dissected by a scratched and smudged line emphasising the passage of a projectile at high speed. At this stage of the battle, casualties were comparatively light. As the Germans were reorganising after the artillery barrage had ceased and the attackers were still hidden in the blanket of mist, rain, gas and smoke, so the defenders were firing blindly. The cumbersome gas masks that Tyres has portrayed adds the comical effect and the stylized interpretation of the scene. Although it is known that many of the men removed them as the talc eyepieces fogged up and their breathing was hampered, risking the gas by getting easier breaths. The gas masks helped to remove the individuality of the soldiers, producing somewhat robotic figures and resulting in a less than dashing and glorious view of this industrialised war, something at odds to the traditional idea of war as a chivalric adventure. The ball is at the centre of the scene, dominant, encouraging the viewer to feel part of the action. Officers, at least in their officer uniforms, are missing from the image, which claims the ordinary soldier's ownership of football and the importance of the individual soldier's action. Tyres, a combat veteran, sardonically prods at the authorities' idea of walking forward in such a dangerous environment. It is offside, unsporting, and against the rules to hurry forward and get to the enemy before they've had time to set up the machine guns. It's interesting to speculate that before the era of recognised small unit offensive tactics, the London Irish riflemen have come up with an impromptu form of combat motivation embedded in their working class background at odds with the aristocratic traditional motivators of the 19th century, king, empire and regiment. 
In May 1917, Lady Butler showed her freely handled watercolour, The London Irish at Lewes, at her solo khaki exhibition, Some Glimpses of the Great War. Butler, the most celebrated and redoubtable battle artist of the late 19th century, was known for addressing the experience of battle from the perspective of the individual ordinary soldier, rather than creating grand panoramas depicting gallant officers performing heroic, heroic deeds, the norm of war paintings of the time in the late 19th century. She acknowledged for her attention to detail. Therefore, the missing gas masks and the soldiers actually running must be deliberate, probably to portray the men as individuals and display their grave and grim goal-scoring determination. The ball, although central, is simply a sphere, with no detailing to draw the focus away from the soldiers' faces. It acts as a focal point and helps create a loose symmetry in the overall structure. The minimal field of depth captures the reality of the day, the fog of war. The whole picture is lit from above, light reflecting off the men's hats, giving an angelic quality, hinting of sacrifice in a righteous cause. Esprit de corps is portrayed by the rifleman on the left, glancing with concern at his colleagues. The painting, in a way similar to Tyres' cartoon, conveys the masculine concept of mateship. The soldiers are equal, loyal to each other, and exude a phlegmatic perseverance. The action is at the very front of the picture, watercolour giving a sense of fluidity and movement, providing this attack with considerable momentum. The London Irish emerged from the gas and smoke just in front of the German front line, and it was here that the leading wave suffered most severely. A machine gun was hidden in one of the crypts in the cemetery, causing severe problems, but the London Irish soon took their allotted section of trench with the bayonet in hand-to-hand -hand combat, Edmonds reported the Londoners arrived in time to catch many of the garrison of the front trench in the act of emerging from their deep dugouts into the gas and smoke. Rifleman Arthur recollected, in reaching the German front line, we found the troops in the act of relief and so crowded they couldn't use their rifles properly, so we had an easy time standing on their parapet, shooting down at their trench. The slaughter was pretty awful. Some chroniclers report the London Irish kicked the ball all the way into the German front line. The weekly dispatch reported they kicked it right into the enemy's trench with the cry of goal, though not before some of them had been picked off on the way. However, McGill saw bullet-ridden against one of the spider webs known as Chevaux de Free, a limp lump of pliable leather, the football which the boys had kicked across the field. After capturing the front line, the London Irish pushed on to their objective, the second line. That's a current. Between the German first and second lines, a hardened machine gun post had to be tackled at Valley Crossroads. Harry Tyres shows Jimmy Handy bombing this machine gun nest as they advance towards the second line. He's put on his gore blimey hat and his gas mask hangs from his pack. Although other soldiers are portrayed wearing their gas masks, it confirms they've left the cover of gas and smoke and football, the football is absent. The German second line was found to be heavily wired, but lightly defended with only shallow trenches. Once these were captured, the London Irish achieved their objective and halted to be leapfrogged by the 19th and 20th battalions, who took over in the van of the attack. The London Irish quickly reorganised the trenches to defend against predicted counter-attacks. By 0930, the 47th had occupied all of its objectives, except for a small maze of trenches in the centre. The London Irish were soon subjected to intense shelling and numerous counterattacks as the British attack petered out. Sadler stated, we passed four days consolidating and resisting counterattacks until at last we were relieved by the promised Scots guards, 
late four days through no fault of their own. This stoic resistance led their brigade commander, Brigadier General Thwaites, to comment, not only am I proud to have the honor of being in command of such a regiment as yours, lads, but the whole empire will be proud wherever in after years the story of the Battle of Lewes comes to be written. For I can tell you that it was the London Irish who helped to save a whole British Army Corps. You've done one of the greatest acts of the war. By holding off the German attacks, they prevented the Germans from cutting off the uh, British units that had advanced to their north. By the 19th of October, the Battle of Lewes was over, with no discernible strategic gains for the Allies. The battle is generally remembered for British errors and how close success was, denied by the combination of the misplacement of reserve troops, a lack of artillery ammunition, and inexperience in all ranks and branches of the army. The failure cost the British Commander-in-Chief, Field Marshal French, his job, being replaced by General Haig. About 8,000 yards of German trenches were captured, and British troops penetrated about two miles into German-occupied France. Unfortunately, most of this was soon lost, and the breakthrough was not achieved. Similarly, the French offensive was disappointing, with over 143,000 casualties. The Battle of Luz was the beginning of the collective image of British troops walking resolutely forward to their deaths, their speed and movement restricted by orders and equipment. The army suffered some 61,000 casualties, of whom over 7,500 were killed. Many of the new army units were devastated, just as French, Haig, Rawlinson and other British commanders feared. But whatever failed at Luz, it was not the men's courage. The relative success of the 47th Division has been attributed to several factors. Not the football, but it includes the realistic and well-defined objectives, Thwaites' innovative and thorough training, and a favourable breeze and slope for the gas. The London Irish attack was far more successful than many of them had expected. Their objectives were achieved for the loss of four officers and 66 other ranks, with 27 men missing and 144 wounded. However, the London Irish were one of the few units to achieve all of their objectives. At the time, the exploits of the London Irish at Lewes received little attention from the British press, and wherever mentioned, the football aspect was ignored. This may have been due to the failure of the battle as a whole and the stiff censorship laws in operation. The only in-depth account appeared in the weekly dispatch of the 31st of October, written by the anonymous wounded rifleman who had been repatriated. Considering the high hopes that many had that sport would bring the necessary qualities for success in the theatre of war, it's surprising that Rifleman Edwards' initiative was essentially overlooked. The importance of sporting spirit on the battlefield was a popular idea at the beginning of the war. Paul Fusel, the American cultural and literary historian, noted, in nothing is the initial British innocence so conspicuous as the universal commitment to the sporting spirit. People from all ranks of society believed in the importance of this spirit and how football would Im impact and develop the spirit to show the natural superiority of the British warrior. To many, football represented the indomitable spirit and triumph of the British character over adversity. It would show the German soldier the impossibility of his task of overcoming the spirit and will of Tommy Atkins, even as the French and Germans scoffed at the British inability to take the war seriously. The only published illustration of the football charge appears to have been on the 30th of October in the weekly The War Illustrated, one of the most successful uh, British weekly newspapers of the time. This contained many hand-drawn illustrations and certainly in the early years of publication acquired a reputation for being sensational and fiercely patriotic with some less than factual reporting. Popular culture 
illustrated by such poems as Newbolt's Vitae Lampada, supported the idea of the dashing, sporting hero leading on the battlefield. The sand of the desert is sodden red, red with the wreck of a square that broke, the gatlings jammed and the colonel's dead, and the regiment blind with dust and smoke. The river of death has brimmed his banks, and England's far an honour a name, but the voice of a schoolboy rallies the ranks. Play up, play up, and play the game. The schoolboy in the poem is obviously a young officer, and this cultural image probably led to the assumption that the football charge of London Irish was an officer's idea, as illustrated here. The First World War officer is classically portrayed as the product of the public school cult of athleticism, taking the idea that war is another form of sport with him into the trenches, the greater game. He is gallant, vigorous and manly, clearly demonstrating physical and moral courage as he steadfastly follows his orders and leads his men forward. They willingly follow. He's displaying the chivalric idea of the public school, thinking of his men and has obviously been looking after them because morale is high, indicated by the jaunty cap angles and the eager forward movement displayed. The caption mentions that he's written the names of his platoon's men on the ball. Perhaps the journalist believes that readers may gain some comfort that their loved ones are members of a close-knit community in their adversity. The officer was struck down before he'd proceeded a few paces, fulfilling the culturally created image of the self-sacrificial warrior of the imperial elite conditioned in the public schools into a muscular Christian martial manhood. Murray Phillips, an Australian sports historian, identifies sport and war as two particular masculine preserves in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, both reinforcing conventional ideas of masculinity through the demonstration of physical prowess, courage, strength, fortitude, endurance, and, and aggression. The war illustrated has produced an idealised version of masculinity, combining both preserves, sport and war, and circulating it back into society. Phillips thought sport was important to masculinity and nationhood, but the supreme activity that fused masculinity with national identity was battle. This propaganda illustration demonstrates to the British public the hyper-masculinity of its soldiers. They are in uniform with a football and carrying weapons in battle. They risk death in the field of honour, self-sacrifice in defence of their home and their country's women. The image's depth of field conveys the sense of a large, orderly battlefield, the way ahead not too difficult for the men, although there is some danger, a casualty occurs in the mid-distance. Their courage and determination can be seen on their faces, not obscured by gas masks. So why a football charge? Considering the problems they faced, many of the British soldiers on the morning of the loose attack would have worried they, they would let the side down by not having the courage to stand up and walk forward into a maelstrom of bullets. Perhaps some of the London Irish believed the ability to confidently kick a ball forward would transfer if they took the ball with them, the skills and ability of the pitch standing them in good stead down the hill to the cemetery. Their individual contact would show the correct sporting spirit so admired by their officers and the British general public, even if the attack was the failure they anticipated. The London Irish had a good football tradition and possibly it was natural that some of them would have turned to it for a psychological lift or as a displacement, although McGill recognised the potential of football as a displacement activity, he wrote that the battalion had not used it for that reason. For others, perhaps kicking a football would have prevented them using their rifles as they advanced. Research has recently shown that only about 20 to 25% of soldiers use a weapon against the enemy in battle. 
This may be because of learnt moral constraints that is deeply embedded in the core of the personality against committing homicide. And during combat, this fear of killing sometimes exceeds that of being killed. Most of the London Irish were civilians in uniform. And so perhaps for some, playing football was not an escape from the immediacy of one's own death, but an escape from killing others. Sergeant Rickson and Riflemans McGill and Edwards all noted the decision to take footballs on the attack was not spur of the moment. It was a considered decision. Perhaps once somebody had suggested dribbling a football forward, other soldiers would have felt that they had to join in to confirm their community loyalty and hence help maintain morale. J.G. Fuller reached an opinion from his research into trench newspapers that many of the new soldiers probably had no pride in their uniform and held no romantic conceptions of soldiery duty, alan or glory. He believed they had remained civilians in uniform and their sense of belonging lay in civilian working class activities such as playing cards, conversations in pubs and bars and playing football behind the lines. Politics professor Andre Markovitz and sports writer Steve Elliman have noted that sports teams can be the single constants in life. Marriages fail, they say. Relationships end. Jobs disappear. Anything can happen. Only one red thread remains reliable through life. Team loyalty. Perhaps playing football in the attack would demonstrate that extreme danger and hardship had not compromised the values that football represented. It would exhibit the soldier's reliability, masculinity and good-natured equanimity. They would not let the side down. Patrick McGill noted that soldiers would remark, I wonder when we're going to get relieved, or I hope we're going to get a month's rest when we get out. Soldiers always speak of we, the individual submerged with his colleagues. The fact that the officers were known to be against them kicking footballs forward may have also increased some men's determination to actually do it. Several men took balls into the trenches, even if only Edwards managed to get his ball into play. This determination may have expressed the camaraderie of the ordinary working-class soldiers, giving them some sense of power over their own destiny and establishing some sort of meaning in their chaotic and incomprehensible world, even as they believed they faced almost certain death. As Mason and Reedy observed, football was the private soldier's one little democratic delight. The intrusion of his military superiors was not necessarily welcome. Given the perceived suicidal nature of the attack, some would have given thought to how they would be remembered. These soldiers would have grown up with glorified and sanitized accounts of previous wars and the empire through prints, songs, poetry, and through fictional accounts in boys' comics and novels. Possibly such were actually approved by the Board of Education for displaying in classrooms. It was only 100 years since Waterloo, 60 or so since Balaclava and the Indian Mutiny, Individual heroes of the Zulu Wars, the Sudan and the Boer War, were actually in the BEF in France and Belgium. But as McGill wrote, they had discovered that ordinary trench warfare was rather a dull game, not that blood-curdling, dashing, mad, sabre-clashing thing that is seen in pictures and which makes one fearful for the soldier's safety. In general, only the names of military commanders such as Cardigan, Wellington and Nelson are known, but the cavalrymen of the Light Brigade were remembered for their magnificent, magnificent suicidal charge performed with swank, pride and courageous masculinity. That glorious blunder of which Englishmen are justifiably proud. Their example of courage, determination and discipline was kept in the British mind through eyewitness accounts, poems, paintings, musical performances and memorial dinners right up to the beginning of the First World War. The last survivor of the Light Brigade died in 1927. 
In the last decades of the 19th century and the early 20th, the valiant soldier was a popular figure in art and had become a cultural reference. With the amplification of masculinity and empowerment, illustrating these values of the imperial agenda. The London Irish did not have horses on which to charge, but they could assume some light brigadeness by playing the game with panache and cheerfulness whilst making the supreme heroic sacrifice. They could make no greater demonstration of the sporting spirit and masculine values than dribbling a football towards the enemy. Even in the face of extreme danger and hardship, their values would not be compromised. Modern football had originated in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, patronised by the ruling classes partly because it was perceived to strengthen the character of young men and thereby help construct a definition of masculinity. To the men of the London Irish, football provided not only a mechanism to engage with society's conception of masculinity, but also the space to demonstrate and prove it. Military inefficiency in the Crimea had been somewhat redeemed by the glory of the Light Brigade and perhaps the perceived incompetence of the decision to attack a strongly defended position at Luz could be partially redeemed by the glory of a football charge. By 1914, football was culturally grounded in the British working class. If they had to die in some corner of a foreign field, they would do it being British and make memories of that place forever England. If the football charge was a performance, it was not only for the British. Rifleman Edwards thought that the sight of British soldiers coolly passing the ball from one to the other would give the enemy their biggest shock of the war. Perhaps they would delay opening fire for a valuable few seconds, preventing some casualties and enhancing the chances of success. Some commentated on the apparent but incorrect impression made on the German defenders. An American volunteer soldier in an adjacent battalion commented, by all rights, the entire regiment should have been wiped out as the odds were against them and they were running right into a death trap. The fact they went to it in such a devil-may-care way as to joke and play with footballs in the very face of certain death broke the Germans' nerve and they gave way with practically no resistance at all. Instead of the regiment being wiped out as it should have been, the men took the trenches with losses of under 100. It was wonderful. Swinton reported the 18th led the attack, kicking a football in front of them. How the Germans gasped at such levity. Henri knew that. The London Irish Rifles' brief history records that to the utter amazement of the French troops on the right, the Irishmen kicked the ball right over to the German trenches, surely the most famous goal in the history of football. It would appear that the football charge of the London Irish met the approval of other British soldiers. Apparently the correct sporting spirit and the proper light-heartedness had been exhibited. After the London Irish captured the German second line, an advanced dressing station was set up in Lewes, just up the street from the trenches. Under the cover of darkness, McGill ferried wounded soldiers from the advanced dressing station to the main dressing station at South Morocco, behind the original German lines. Once he had to crawl along trenches under fire with the injured on his back. On one of these nights, McGill left Lewes with a wounded soldier and missed his way in the confusion of the battlefield and ended up on a at another dressing station. Outside the station was soldiers of a Scottish regiment resting and drinking tea after being relieved from the trenches. McGill begged a cup of tea from them, and one of the McGill asked which regiment he was from. The London Irish, I told him. It was your fellows that kicked the football across the field? Yes. Into the German trench? Not so far, I told the man. A bullet hit the ball by the barbed wire entanglements. I saw it lying there during the day. It was the maddest thing I've ever heard of, said the jock. The centenary of the First World War has significantly increased the attention given to the historical relationship between sport and war. 
Robert Hans of the Times noted that the most famous symbiosis of war and sport occurred in the 1914-1918 war with the unlikely and impromptu game of football between allies and Germans on Christmas Day and kicking a football out of the trenches before going over the top. Events that are moving towards the cliched in histories of the First World War. Ray Vanplu has identified these specific occasions as micro-level myths, stories which contain elements of truth. British troops walking slowly forward into a maelstrom of machine gun bullets following a piper or a football is part of British collective memory. Paul Fusel asserted that after the London Irish attack, kicking a football forward soon achieved the status of a conventional act of bravado. But it's highly probable that only two football charges occurred, despite rumours and fleeting references to others. Many of the claims by soldiers to have participated in a football charge are probably due to reflection and refraction, and memories becoming more comprehensive, even when unreliable through time. Richard Holmes thought that recorded oral histories may relate imaginary incidents as soldiers reflect the past through the prism of the present. However, the London Irish actions were certainly copied by Billy Neville at the Somme less than a year later, an officer worried about the performance of his untried men. However, it has not been possible to corroborate other purported instances, and interestingly, it is only from the London Irish and the East Surreys that artistic representations have been found. All three balls used in the attacks, one at Lewes and two at the Somme, were recovered from the battlefield and proudly exhibited back at the regiment's home bases. The ball of the London Irish, recently renovated, is at their headquarters at Connaught House in London. One of the two East Surrey balls was in the Surrey Infantry Museum at Clandon Park, Guildford, when the museum was destroyed by fire on the 29th of April this year. The other is normally at the Prince of Wales Royal Regiment Museum at Dover Castle. Until the end of this week, it's actually at the National Football Museum in Preston on their exhibition of First World War football. As General Thwaites commented that the Irish London London Irish had done one of the greatest acts of the war, was reviewed and related. It was probably revised to be a praise of the attack rather than the stalwart defence. In turn, the place of football in the attribution of a success, at least in part, will have been exaggerated and convinced others to ponder the use of football in, in similar circumstances. It would not be until after the Somme that the British infantry offensive tactics would become sufficiently evolved and refined to demand more than merely walking forward from most of the men involved. Lewes was part of the British Army's steep learning curve as it came to terms with 20th century warfare and its need for all arms tactics to defeat the German army. The highly efficient and trained squad tactics of the later years of the war precluded such diversions as kicking a football forward. Rifleman Edmonds himself was hit before reaching enemy lines. Mickey Mile and paused to apply a tourniquet. This undoubtedly saved Edwards' life so that he could become the star of the reenactment of the charge on the 24th September 1926 at a torchlight tattoo at the London Irish Barracks at the Duke of York headquarters, Chelsea. Rifleman Milam himself was shot through the chest after applying Edward's tourniquet. The men probably embraced the idea. It would be a diversion, would show bravery, display swank and sang-froid. Football met with the personal needs of some of the men and probably one way of helping the men voluntarily walk forward into the fire of machine guns and the crunching maelstrom of mass shell fire. However, the vast majority of units went into action without football, their man motivated by the hatred of the Huns, a need for revenge for the innocents as well as of relatives and friends, their belief that God was on their side, allied to pure courage and determination. Many may see the football charge of the London Irish as a risable gesture, but the battalion had had previous combat experience, were well-trained and rehearsed, 
they chose to defy the horrors of the attack while demonstrating pride in their unit and the British way of life. If they were killed, they were choosing how their deaths would be remembered, perhaps recalling Simone's epitaph to the Spartans. Stranger, tell the Spartans how we die. The London Irish lost on the 25th of September 1915 are buried in a number of cemeteries around Lewes. The missing remembered in Dud Corner, one kilometre west of Lewes. Few traces of the Battle of Lewes, although some gravestones uh, in the village cemetery do have reminders. Um, the trench lines, outlines can still be seen at certain times of the year. The village, though largely destroyed, was basically rebuilt by October 1923. The site of Tower Bridge is now the site of the Lewes British Cemetery. The morning after the charge, 26 September 1915, McGill recalled talking to one acquaintance in his regiment. Many of your mates killed, I asked. Many of them indeed, he replied. Old L went west the moment he crossed the top. He only had one kick of the ball. A bullet caught him in the belly. I heard him say, a foul, a blurry foul. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.